Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hello, welcome to a packed end-of-year Space Boffins podcast with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. In partnership with Naked Scientists, this time we have a guided tour of the International Space Station, an interview with the chief scientist on the Voyager missions, as well as the 10th man on the moon. Ten Republican credits, if you can guess what he's talking about here. I would not consider a one-way trip. Buzz Aldrin would do it. Uh, he's already told me he'd like to go. If you're going to go that far, why don't we just stay? More from Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke and a potential holiday destination later. Our studio guests are space journalist and former NASA scientist and engineer David Baker, who makes a welcome return to the podcast, this time as author of the Haynes Owners Workshop Manual for the International Space Station. And we're also joined by the writer and performer of Radio 4's It Is Rocket Science, described as a low-budget, highly subjective look at the history and future of space travel. Well, you're in welcome company. Uh, Helen Keane. Um, Helen, um, you talk about the future of, of space travel. Is the future looking bright? I think so, yeah. I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting moving to a Death Star, I think, in 2013. <laughs> I think that's... That's, that's very nearest. specific, yeah. a Death Star. <laughs> and not just a Lego worrying. One. David, 2013 uh, is definitely looking exciting for space tourism. Virgin planning to fly into space for the first time is is that's what's sort of you know tickling your well coming? i was just a little bit worried i might be on the receiving end of the death star but <laughs> i just I hope that brunson isn't really putting me on the spot for that one because they're doing groundbreaking work and they've got high level aspirations certainly but they've been blowing up too many engines it's difficult so you know let's keep our fingers crossed wish them well and hope that it does push through wow and it's it's the pr aspect here that's the thing isn't it because what Virgin are good at is the PR. And Richard Branson is the travel agent. The rocket scientists are the guys who are doing the real work. Exactly. (laughs) Well, in November 1998, I stood in the freezing cold on top of a mound in Kazakhstan, a mound that later turned out to be a missile silo. Uh, I was there to watch the launch of the first stage of the International Space Station, the ISS. Well, 14 years on, the station is complete. Six astronauts are living and working on board. And even the UK has decided to put money into the project, pledging £16 million at the recent European Space Agency Ministerial Council meeting. So what's it like to live on the space station? Well, to find out, I went inside the world's only full-scale mock-up, which takes up an area the size of a football pitch at NASA's Johnson Space Centre in Houston. Here's our guide, Chief Training Officer Catherine Bolt, to open the hatch. Come 
inside here, this is actually the node two or the second module where we can connect essentially six different modules to us. And, and if we look that way, you can see the US lab and then all the way through down to the Russian segment. So really we're standing at a meeting point between the, the US between Japan and, and Europe and, and then down the end is Russia. That's exactly right. One thing that, that strikes me straight away, I mean it's not each module is not huge but it's when it joins up that, that the whole thing becomes big. But obviously we're, we're operating gravity, you're training people mm -hmm. with gravity. So we're standing on what you've decided this is the floor right. and then above us it's the ceiling because you've got the, the lights there but in reality the, of course there's no floor or ceiling or, or walls how do you get around that well when it comes to training in this mock-up we really can't do a whole lot about it. you have to walk on the floor <laughs> we don't have an anti-gravity switch <laughs> sometimes we try to pretend but that doesn't quite work so so we do have to just work with you know maybe taking up some floor space with some some stowage or other stuff so that they understand that the floor isn't always just you know a full open pathway okay so this is the working environment if you like for the for the european astronauts the japanese astronauts and and the americans when they come through this laboratory area, and I think the American lab is the, is the next module down. Where do the astronauts and the cosmonauts live? Uh, well, actually, it's a very good question. So right here in this module is where they sleep. So these four stations right here. Are Hold on, I can't. So the, what these these cupboards? Yep, there's four of them right here in a row. They kind of make a circle, and this is their sleep station. So four of the six on board sleep here. And then we have two sleep stations all the way down at the other end on the Russian side where the other two crew members sleep. So, how about this is, I mean, this looks like a wardrobe. <laughs> it looks yes. like it's a padded wardrobe. Yes. And this is, so one astronaut would, would sleep in here. Would sleep in there, that's exactly right. So, this is their private quarters. They would have a sleeping bag that, that is attached to this wall. And then when they want to sleep, they just get inside there, they zip up, and they essentially sleep against the wall. They also have a computer set up so they can have their own personal computer. Um, it has access to the internet, more like dial-up than you know what we're used to here on Earth. But at least they can get to websites. They can um, call their family using the IP phone, stuff like that. So, so it's their space. They can decorate it how they want, put their stuff in there, get dressed in there, do what they want inside their space. You know, in terms of size, this is, I suppose, just I'm just put my head inside. It's, oh, can I get inside? I'm not sure I can fit inside. Okay, so I can get inside a crew compartment to get a sense of how it really is a padded wardrobe, a padded cell with a wardrobe. I suppose it's not unlike uh, airline toilet size, that that's sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. so I guess, can I just shut the, yeah, the doors, get the sense of first? Uh, so we shut the doors. Um, this is as if I'd been shut in a padded wardrobe. Now, actually, this is quite different to the other areas of the, the station we've seen so far, which are packed with equipment and laptops and bits and pieces. This is much more open. It's also one of the last modules added, but it's open because they, they have their exercise equipment here. So this is one of their, it's called ARED, an exercise resistive device. 
they lift weights essentially with this machine and it, it's connected to where it it does not impact the station structure so every time they lift weights they're not putting an impact on the station structure so it's it's isolated from everything you have to think about that actually because if you're moving a weight around in some size something in space you could actually alter the position of the space station you can and or if they get into a rhythm we've had a couple of a uh, few astronauts sometimes accidentally get into too much of a rhythm uh, on their weights and suddenly there's there's this vibration caused across the entire stack and and of course there's sensors everywhere so we monitor that and we're like what's going on you know so that's something that we have to watch for. It looks like the worst bit of gym equipment ever. I mean, if you went into a gym and thought, oh, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I think so too. But but the crew loves it. This is the, the machine that really helps them save their muscles. Because on orbit, you don't use muscles. But this machine, they can. They can work out their, you know, their legs, their arms, their um, calves, whatever. You know, everything they can do as far as weightlifting from this machine. Now, it would be very remiss of me if I didn't ask about the toilets. Okay. Right behind you is the toilet. So this is what we call our cabin. The toilet itself is the same essential toilet as what we is used in the Russian segment, and then they have one in the, each Soyuz. So technically there's four on board. And, and can they use, they're able to use all, all four of them? So it's not sort of cues for the, for the, <laughs> the toilet in the morning or whatever. Um, that's a very good question. You know, technically, we only the U.S. guys typically only use this one, and then the Russian crew uses the one in the Russian segment, so only three people happen to share. And you don't use the Soyuz ones except um, when you're in the Soyuz. So only if both of the ones on station are broken do we get permission from Moscow to use the ones on the Soyuz. So you have to have permission to you do that. You do have to have permission. <laughs> you actually have to have permission for the Russian guys to use this toilet and for the U.S. guys to use that toilet as well. <laughs> so, everyone knows everything. Catherine Bolt, Chief Training Officer for the International Space Station. And Catherine's also one of the few people, apart from astronauts, who is a Capcom in mission control. And I was just listening back to the uh, to thinking, I've covered the sleeping area, the exercise area, and the toilet, and I call myself a science <laughs> journalist. <laughs> yeah, but what is the difference between a US and a Russian bottom? This is what we want to know. What, and the Soyuz, you have to get special permission to use the It's Soyuz. like a diplomatic That's, incident yeah, if one goes wrong. I thought I was asking a flippant question and it turns out it was quite a serious point. It was a big deal, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's get some science into into this uh, podcast. Uh, David Baker, author of obviously the Haynes Manual for the station. Let's let's just get the bottom line here. What is, because a lot of people will wonder, who haven't been with it from day one, what is a space station for? It's not just for diplomatic incidents with toilets. (laughs) Well, you might think so, but it's not. Yes, that's right. Um, Well, you know, back in the the origin of all this and in the good old halcyon days of science fiction, um, we all thought of space stations as spinning circular wheels where you could gain artificial gravity and therefore not suffer from the influence of weightlessness in space. But it turns out through decades of exploring space and living in space and working up there and of course the Russians have had a huge amount of experience in this and NASA with the Skylab program, um, that in fact in many, many ways you want that weightlessness to be able to do things that you cannot do on Earth. And one of the most amazing things that's coming out of it that's that's something that I'm particularly involved with um, NASA and the U.S. Air Force School of Aviation Medicine has the world's largest human physiology bank of information and data on human beings. And it 
turns out that the effects you experience after several weeks in space are weightlessness, and this is one of the really valuable parts of a space station, or aspects to the programme, is that you get the onset of ageing, which is you lose calcium, bone density, bones become brittle. You lose the atrophy of your muscles starts to degrade and you lose the cardiovascular functions that we're used to because the body is not under stress you have to put that stress back to compensate and that now turns out that we're putting this information out into the communities of health workers that are dealing with older people space station for that and it's also for materials research semiconductor crystals, it's for Earth observations, it's for physics experiments. So it's a great place, which is only an hour from Earth, <laughs> which is a whole new environment. It, it has sort of changed, because I remember reporting on this um, for the BBC right from when they started with their, their first node. I, I think yeah. the word node is just <laughs> yeah. the most uncharismatic <laughs> word they could use for these mm. um, modules that all click together. Yeah. It was very political at the beginning. Mm. A lot of, of mm. the reports mm. that we mm. were doing were all about, you know, who mm. was paying what. Could mm. Russia afford it? There was a bit where, you know, r- r- the, the money for Russia, everyone was worried. Mm. And mm. now the emphasis does mm. seem to have changed from mm. political mm. to scientific mm. in terms of yeah. its advantages because everyone was calling it a white elephant at one point. Well, they were well, indeed. And, well, yeah. some still do. Yes, yes. I mean, I was I was out of the Apollo program into the shuttle program and then the space station, I, I was up at headquarters at that time working to try to gather the group of international partners and I made a number of visits to the then Soviet Union in the 1980s. We knew that their space program was taking such huge resources and the political will in the United States was when all this is over and as Gorbachev came in um, there was an open expressive dialogue and this fundamental demarcation between the Russian segment and the other partners comes from a recognition of pride that they're not just shacked up to a bunch of of newcomers like Europeans, Japanese and Canadians but that they actually have welded together a common program and so essentially they have their section and the original group of partners have theirs but it was Bill Clinton who saved the space station he he came to office as president put a stop work order on space station Congress was only giving us half the budget each year it was originally set up by Reagan in 84. It was 98 before we started launching First Elements, by which time the Russians had come on board. So that, it's a level of respect. I mean, I know we joke about this and about the fact that permission, etc. But I have to tell you, those guys in space tear up the rule book when it comes to what the politicians are. Oh, no, you must do this, you must do that. But actually going into that mock-up, yeah. and we, we didn't hear it, then yeah. it is like two different space stations cobbled together. It is the Russian section. Yeah. It's it's remarkably similar to the mock-up yes. I've seen of Mir. Yes, it, yes, it's, yes, you yeah, know, yeah. complete with carpet on the walls. It's yes. extraordinary. It's a very yeah, yeah, different right. experience yeah. being mm. in the Russian section mm. to the the shiny white mm. and beige European, uh, yeah. American, and, with and the Japanese Starbucks, section. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, the the original module, of course, in the Russian section was Mir two. That was their module. They had plans fully and completely implemented to launch Mir 2. And, of course, the first phase of Space Station was nine visits by shuttle crews aboard Mir. Helen, I know you use Apollo as a sort of inspiration for some of your performances. Does the Space Station give you the same sort of material or bars? To be honest, listening just now, it sounds amazing, but I always think there's always that sort of slightly uh, worrying fact about the Space Station that quite often you're closer to the Space Station in London than you are to Newcastle. And that's (laughs) one of those facts that always makes the Space Station 
conversation seem a bit more kind of prosaic rather than Newcastle more exciting I think sadly but um, yeah I mean just hearing about it now it's, I mean it does sound with the cupboardy rooms does sound a little bit like some of the flats I've had so I thought I'm probably quite well I'd be quite I'd but I mean I'd, also it's just really interesting because I love those wonderful pictures those vintage images that you see from the 50s and 60s the sort of going around the, of the sort of the spinning circular state. do you think we'll ever have those or this is a good person do you <laughs> I think I think that's where it kicks in if we go to the planets and the stars and mm. and, and, and my ambition and hope is is to live long enough to see the beginning of that yes. because when humans have to survive a lot about two years ago a whole bunch of NASA scientists sat down and listed 48 items that were absolutely essential to go into deep space and beyond Earth orbit to planetary destinations and as they were ticked off not one of those had been accomplished to date there's a lot of PR a lot of hype a lot of expectation we are still decades away from being able to satisfactorily be able to do that but when we carry people we are going to have to have spinning modules to create artificial gravity because for all we've learned the wonderful things about medical science from zero g when we live in space ourselves as journey folks we're gonna have to put people into artificial g in order to keep their bodies robust you'd hate to get to mars and have your bones collapse in a part of dust because they simply have you two weeks to get out of the spacecraft now as the writer of of the guide to this space Mm. station Mm. i mean does it depress you slightly that people don't even know that it's there or don't get excited by I, the space station? I think it's absolutely true to say that it doesn't have that iconic, inspirational, shining light that comes through that Apollo does. But, you know, we'll never repeat Apollo. Mm. We have now broken the surly bonds of Earth, you know, the gravitational bonds, and have been to places where humans are in the gravitational grip of another world in space. You can't do that again and keep doing it again so now it's the serious long slog and that's just as important this is the award-winning space boffins podcast i like saying that (laughs) in partnership with the naked scientists and as all space boffins know this month marks the 40th anniversary of the last footstep on the moon trodden by apollo 17 astronaut gene cernan now one of his colleagues apollo 16 astronaut charlie duke was in the uk recently and space boffin reporter kate arkless gray caught up with him in yorkshire this is Space Kate, and I'm here in Pontefract, of all places, to meet somebody who's walked on the moon. Sitting in front of me is Charlie Duke from Apollo 16, 10th man to walk on the moon. I have to ask, what are you doing here in Pontefract? Uh, I, sometimes I ask myself the same question. Uh, there's a group of people here, though, that uh, love to sponsor astronauts to come speak to uh, the schools here. I love kids, and I love to motivate them. And, uh, and nobody has ever heard of Pontefract, and in uh, the States and said, well, the question you asked is the question I get over there. Why are you going there? But it's uh, it's really a, a, a very friendly place and the people are really nice and the kids really like uh, to hear astronauts. So he's had four or five astronauts come here in the last uh, five or six years and this is my second time. First time was seven years ago. I'm not old enough to remember the moon landings, but mm-hmm. I know people who are, and they always say it's one of those unforgettable things. What about the, the generation below me, the, the school children? Are they still as excited about the moon landings? Uh, they probably don't uh, have, you know, from the history books even hardly any recollection. But once you start talking about it, they get fascinated. And, uh, and how many of you want to be an astronaut? A lot of hands grow up. So they understand astronaut. They understand space shuttle, space station and stuff. 
but they've never been exposed to Apollo. So it's, uh, you, know, you know, the eyes get real wide, you know, big rocket lift off, and I show show the landing and walking on the moon, falling down, and, you know, they get really excited about that. So I find people all over the world uh, still really interested in the Apollo program. And I, I suppose because you can you can look out of the window and you can see the moon, you know, even if you're no good at astronomy yeah. or you don't know the constellations, you look up, the moon is there. What about Mars? Because I, I don't think quite so many people would be able to point accurately in the sky and identify Mars. Do you think they'd be as excited? Uh, uh, maybe, uh, but I doubt it. Uh, most people uh, see Mars as just so distant out there. Uh, I think the technical side, pilots and stuff like that, who are astronauts, they get really excited about Mars. Uh, at my age, I wouldn't go to Mars, but if I were younger, your age, I would... Uh, I would volunteer for a trip to Mars. Yeah, uh, it'd be really fascinating. Look back at, and the Earth just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just a little blue dot out there. It's uh, you'd be a long way from home. Would that be unnerving? I mean, you've been uh, further away than anyone else. So. I think the thing that'd be most unnerving is hello, Houston, and uh, 15 minutes later you hear back, hello, Mars mission. So you're really going to be isolated out there, and uh, the uh, the communication delay is going to really make you feel isolated. And so you're going to have to have some, I think, real good psychological uh, encouragement on a trip like that. Mm-hmm. But I think the human spirit is to go to Mars, and we'll see people go. Now, I don't know if you've heard about it, but there's... Um there's a group of people that are doing something called Mars One. So they want to create a sort of reality television show where they select the astronauts that are going to go to Mars. And what they're saying is that one of the main problems we have with going to Mars is the fuel that you need mm. to get back again is, is one of the you know, limiting factors. What if we just go one way? Is that something that you would ever consider or is that I, I just would a not, I would not consider a one-way trip. Buzz Aldrin would do it. Uh, he's already told me he'd like to go. If you're going to go that far, why don't we just stay? I think that's a lot of problems to overcome on a one-way trip. You, uh, you know, establishing a base there, providing the food, all of the, all of that can be done. But colonizing Mars, I see, is a long way off. But Buzz is ready to go at, even at his age. Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke with Kate Arkless Gray. Presumably Buzz Aldrin will only go if he can be the first to step on the, uh, the Martian surface. <laughs> would, would either of you or anyone in the studio want to join Buzz Aldrin on a, on a one-way trip to Mars? It just sounds so unfair. I remember reading an interview with Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space, and she also said she said exactly the same thing, that she would go to Mars on a one-way trip and she'd just be very happy. So I just love the idea of all these really old astronauts just going to Mars and it'd be sort of this weird sort of Martian cocoon kind of thing going on. And it would just be... I just think we should... I really am very pro this idea now. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to rain on their parade with my with my uh, under-septuagenarian-ness. Under so, um, as the... Older person in the studio here, David. The more mature. Thank the you. more mature person in the studio. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. I wasn't right implying <laughs> that David is old enough to go home. <laughs> I, I just wondered, the first thing we build there will be a care home, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, um, I, seriously and honestly, I would, and I've said this to my next and dearest love, that... Um, which is the lady of me in my life, um, that I would be prepared to go and not come back. But I can say this, you know, having had seven decades of, of a tremendously exciting life, and, and I think, well, if you've got to go, you've got to go. And, yeah, I would. 
I would. Uh, let's talk then about going back to the moon. A, a lot of interest in the last few weeks with this um, this Golden Spike company, mm. which I'm sure I've heard of before, um, has just announced it will fly people to the moon for 1.4 billion US dollars. I mean, David, is that is that feasible? Well, I'd do it for 1.2 billion. <laughs> <laughs> this is your moment. To give me the money. Yeah. Give me the money. I'll, I'll, I'll send you. Um, well, technically, yes. I mean, agreements with the Russians who have had. Um, through their Soyuz and Zond programs in the 1960s. Um, there is a vehicle there which can carry people around the moon, certainly. They have no viable moon landing vehicle. Um, there's the Alaban company, which is trailing that, has been trailing it for several years. So technically, there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't do it. If we motivated the resources, the infrastructure, and it wouldn't take a tremendous amount, the hardware's there. But you'd have to do that that element, that motivation. I mean, there was a tremendous yeah. motivation to get man on the moon by 1969. Mm. There, there yes. isn't anymore. No, is there? no, there, there isn't. There, there, was, there was one whole side of the world wanting to demonstrate to the other that Western democracies were the political programme of choice, as it were, and we were demonstrating to the uncommitted nations that American technology could do this and that, and therefore, you know. Um, it's a whole different world today. Um, and the science that came out of Apollo arose out of the ashes of the Cold War. There's no doubt about that. But, um, yes, I think it's, it's, it's doable. I doubt if you've got the numbers of people with 1.4, 1.3 billion available to spend. Helen, your your show, Spacetacular, a stand-up comedy about outer space. How easy is it to find comedy in the moon landings? I think it, you kind of always look to the sort of human elements of it, because obviously when you've got... I mean, like, at the moment, obviously with Mars, there's a lot less comedy in, say, hydrogen to deuterium ratios in a soil sample <laughs> than there is with, you know, a group of people going to the moon. So I think you always kind of focus on the human aspects of it and the sort of, you know, the fascinating personality. I mean, you heard Charlie Duke there. I mean, he was what a wonderful. What a wonderful guy. He's obviously got that wonderful voice and all that life we've, experience. We've both, actually, Rich and I have both had lunch with him. Have you? Oh, and it was fat And you could listen to him... He, he definitely yes. would win my loveliest lovely. astronaut yeah. award. He's he, does, he does seem, yeah, I mean, I've him with him. He always seems like a real sweetheart. Oh, I can yes. say that about oh, Gorgeous, gorgeous. Okay, so here's a question for everyone. Where would you find this sound? Any ideas? Anyone? Any ideas? David? Well, it's on a spacecraft. And it is on a spacecraft. Which, which spacecraft? Voyager 2, wasn't it? It's Voyager 1, actually. I think you're right, actually. I think the same disc is on both spacecraft, actually. Yes, that's the uh, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 uh, disc. And in the last few days, the Voyager 1 spacecraft has entered a new region at the far reaches of our solar system. That scientists reckon is the final area the spacecraft has to cross before entering interstellar space. Well, during my recent visit to NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, I met Ed Stone, chief scientist for the Voyager missions, who's been working on them since the mid-1970s. And we spoke next to a full-size model of the spacecraft, and Ed started by explaining how it all worked. Behind this large antenna, which is 12 feet in diameter, is the main bus of the spacecraft, which is where all the computers and other equipment that fly the spacecraft. And then out of each direction are two long booms, on one boom, we have the power supply, which is natural radioactive decay of plutonium-238, a very hot source, thermally hot, lots of thermocouples converting it to electricity. So that's what keeps Voyager going for so many years. Uh, and there also, as not shown here, is a 
13-meter boom, which has on it the magnetic field measuring devices to get them away from the spacecraft itself. On this other uh, side of the spacecraft, we have the science boom, which has almost all the instruments, including instruments that were used to look at the planet, and now the instruments which are measuring what's out there in space uh, as we are heading toward interstellar space. And on the side, uh, this is, I suppose, the most famous part of, of the Voyager probes is this disc. What is on it? This is the cover of a record. Uh, behind that cover uh, is a record, uh, a 16 and two-thirds RPM grooved record, double-sided. Uh, it has on it readings of Earth in many languages, music of Earth from many different cultures. It has images of Earth. Uh, so it was a, a message uh, from the Earth to deep space. And the cover for it now it all makes sense. You look at it. This is essentially a diagram of instructions of how to play the record. This is a diagram of instructions. It tells because there's a, a map of the nearby pulsars. These are rapidly rotating stars. Uh, that will help them locate where the Earth was when this spacecraft left Earth. Of course, the Earth, like everything else, is orbiting the center of our galaxy. And also tells the uh, whoever finds this thing, if it's ever found, that there is a phonograph record inside the spacecraft that can be used to play the record. Now, this launched in what, 1977? Did both launch 1977? Yes, both spacecraft were launched, one on August 20th and then on September 5th. So it's 35 years ago. And it, it went up, it carried on going, and it, there, were, there was a huge amount of interest along the way as it passed the various planets in the solar system. And then it kind of went quiet. Everyone seemed to forget about it. And now, suddenly, it's getting exciting again. What's exciting is that we're nearing the edge of the huge bubble the sun creates around itself and around all the planets. That bubble is called the heliosphere. The atmosphere of the sun speeds away at 400 kilometers per second, a million miles per hour, creating this huge bubble. And for the last 35 years, we have been inside the bubble. Now Voyager 1 is very near the edge of the bubble, the edge of interstellar space, because outside the bubble lies the space between the stars. And can you say where that boundary is? Because I think the last couple of years I've seen press releases from NASA saying it's at the edge, it's, it's at the boundary, it's on the way to interstellar space. Well, we are clearly close. We can't tell you how close because nothing has ever been there before and our models do not tell us the detail that we're now seeing. But we have seen dramatic changes in the, uh, in the environment out there which tell us that we are now indeed very close. In fact, we're in a new region where all the radiation we had been seeing has gone away that stuff which is produced inside the heliosphere, and the radiation which is outside, the cosmic rays which are created outside, are leaking in. So either we're on in a region well-connected to interstellar space or we're actually in interstellar space. We don't know yet. We have more data we need to collect to know whether we've actually crossed into interstellar space or we're just well-connected to it. How far away is it at the moment? I mean, can you give it to me in terms of, of miles or...? The Voyager 2 is a, at 122 astronomical units. The astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So that means Voyager 1 is 11 billion miles out from the Sun, 18 billion kilometers. And Voyager 2 is 2 billion miles closer. <laughs> I mean, that's phenomenal. How do you get a signal from that? I mean, how weak is that signal coming back from, from this? I mean, it's a big antenna, but really, that's a phenomenal distance. It's a phenomenal distance when you think we have a 23-watt transmitter. <laughs> 
transmitting from 18 billion, uh, 11 billion miles out. Uh, so the signal is incredibly weak. We need our largest antennas at the Deep Space Network. There are three of them around the world. They're 70-meter antennas. Or we can use a, a pair of 34-meter antennas ganged together uh, in order to receive this very, very weak signal. The other thing is we have to turn the rate at which we send things back way down. And so we receive data at the rate of 160 bits per second. So, again, it's all slow, the distances involved, and you're dealing with 1970s technology, and yet it's still going strong. It's still going strong. The system design was remarkable. We had a lot of redundancy backup systems, many of which we have now turned on because the primary system basically finally wore out. Uh, So we're on our backups Uh, But, in fact, we certainly don't expect anything to break unless some random part fails and that we will eventually will have to turn things off just because the power is not enough. Ed Stone, Chief Scientist for the Voyager missions. Helen, I saw your your face mirrored mine, actually, during that recording. Do you think anyone will ever hear that record or learn how to play it? I don't know. It's a wonderful idea, isn't it? I was just thinking about it. It, it, Because you get into this more... I mean, obviously, that's 70s technology, but a lot of the technology that we're using now, this idea that, you know, the human lifespan versus the lifespan of this technology. And I I almost kind of want it to be the case that he's got a son who takes over his job and then it sort of goes on for generation after generation and then eventually one of his... Oh, daughter, that was incredibly sexist. Uh, oh, we'll off. I'm shaming myself. Or you know, he's his, and one at some point in the future, one of his descendants gets this message. That would just be wonderful. But yeah, I think it, it, it's maybe not the most likely thing. Inspirational, <laughs> David. Oh, I think so very much so. And and particularly Ed Stone, I, I think it's wonderful to hear his voice, just as James Van Allen in the late 50s with the first American satellite gave us such profound information about the magnetosphere and how the Earth interacts with space. Ed Stone's done that to the whole solar system with the boundary of the heliosphere. Well, thank you very much to our guests. David Baker, author of the Haynes Owners Workshop Manual for the International Space Station, and Helen Keane, whose Spectacular show will be playing at London's Leicester Square Theatre on January the 27th. The Space Boffins podcast is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put some pictures from today's podcast. We're back in a month, but we'll leave you with some highlights from that Voyager golden record on its way to the stars. A list of these sounds can be found on our Space Boffins Facebook page. Let's see if you can work them out for yourself. Thanks for listening. Hello from the children of planet Earth. Selamat malam hadirin sekalian. Selamat berpisah dan sampai bertemu lagi di lain waktu.